Welcome to the Yogi Therapist Podcast, where we talk all things mental health, personal growth, and spiritual development. I'm your host, Rachel, a psychotherapist and yoga teacher based in Sydney. This is your space to gain new insights and tools so that you can live a life that feels aligned and meaningful. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Yogi Therapist Podcast. I am so excited for my now third episode, but my second guest. Today we are joined by honestly one of my favorite human beings on the planet. One of my best friends, but also an amazing therapist that I have had the privilege to study alongside and kind of work alongside a little bit. Um, And so I'm going to let her introduce herself but today we are joined by Michaela what last name are you going now depends who you ask (laughs) Kowalski yeah well Well, she just got married I haven't changed my last name yet okay work is Michaela Gagoski Mm -hmm. play is (laughs) Kayla Kowalski (laughs) I love how they're like exactly the same last name (laughs) yeah we're both Polish you know um yeah, so you can choose, right? Okay, so we have multiple people on the couch apparently <laughs> slipping into a few personalities. We can unpack that later. Um, so Michaela is an amazing trauma therapist who has been working in private practice for the last few years and we met studying together. We did our master's together. Yes. So maybe let's start a little bit with how it is that you came to be a therapist. Yeah. So I came to being a psychotherapist through a very <clears throat> an interesting way. Mm. Um, I am a little bit older than you, even yeah. though you would never tell. <laughs> and I, I did my undergrad in psych and then I decided I, I was done with studying. Mm-hmm. I knew I was always going to come back to it, but I didn't know if I was going to come back to it in the form of psychology or psychotherapy. I was still – I know you were always kind of – committed to the psychotherapy route, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure. And at the time I was working for uh, Westfield in lots of different people management roles and I kind of fell into the deep, dark corporate world. What do you mean by deep, dark corporate world? I just – I was in the corporate world for seven years after that. Yeah. Um, And I loved it and I still Mm, do. Yeah. My big – my big long-term goal is to actually go back into the corporate space mm. because it's so needed. Mm. It's so, so, so needed. And I stayed with Westfield Now Centre Group for about seven years and I worked in a lot of different of their um, lot of different apart- departments, all in leadership roles, people management, um, managed really big teams and did a lot of personal development work with my team. Um and it was there that I was like, I think this is what I want to do. Like mm-hmm. this is the space. Like no matter what department I was in, if I was in HR, if I was in security, if I was in risk and risk and security, like whatever it was, I always found myself in that connection place with people. Mm. And I always became like you said in your first episode, you know, you became that person that 
you know, just got into the nitty gritties with people, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, You'd go from like managing them to them knowing their whole life story. Now that works to my detriment because I'm like, (laughs) boundaries. (laughs) Everyone just back the. And if you can swear on this podcast, (laughs) say whatever the fuck you want. My mom is listening, but (laughs) back the fuck off. Yeah. But like my 23, 24 year old self Mm. was like, you know, this little nurturer. It's a temperament. I think there's a deep curiosity about connecting with people on that level. And yeah. I know you now. Um, I don't think any of us, either of us find it satisfying to get to know someone on a surface level. No. Nah. I know you said in your first episode, it's like, Childhood ch- like chalk, chalk on a whiteboard, a chalk on a blackboard. Chalk, chalk on a chalk whiteboard. On a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it's supposed to be. Chalk babe. on a chalkboard. Is that it? Chalk on a chalkboard. Chalk on a chalkboard. <laughs> I swear, guys, I'm smarter than this. <laughs> um, People entrust their lives to this woman. Yeah. <laughs> you can leave now, guys. Yeah. Um, I just, I feel very, um, even now as uh, where I'm at in my life, I mm. feel it's very hard for me when people keep me at arm's length. Yeah. I feel it very, very challenging when I can't access someone. Um, and when things are, you know, the coffee chat, the small talk. Mm. And so, yeah, I kind of fell into this role. And then, and then I knew that I needed to go back to study. And... I then decided, okay, I'm going to go back to study. And being a few years older and doing a lot more research, and mm. I was definitely in that space. I was being exposed to unbelievable executive coaches and unbelievable like mm. corporate facilitators in all, you know, leadership, management, development, growth, like in from the corporate space. But it was all from a training perspective, but mm. it's what I – I was like, oh, this is amazing. There was that real human element to it. And when I started looking into if I go back to do maybe my honours or do my master's in psychotherapy, mm. it just actually at that time was a no-brainer. Yeah. It was just a no-brainer when I knew who I had become and who I was. And so I – you know, did a bit of research in which masters I wanted to do. And then I landed up, you know, studying with you. What was the draw for you? What pulled you into psychotherapy as opposed to what made it so clear and obvious to you that this was the right path? Yeah. Um, I think for me, I saw psychology, and this is no offense at all to psychologists because a lot of. I think of, I'm going to say that so many times on the podcast. No shame to psychologists. <laughs> no shame. But I feel like you doing what you're doing is actually giving us a voice, is actually giving the psychotherapists a voice where we do a very similar. We, we, we work in a very similar model and we work for pretty much the well, – sorry, we study for pretty much the same amount of time. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And we just, you know, it's just – yeah, it's just obviously, as you said again in your first episode, it's politics that we don't have that voice. But I think I'm just a really strong advocate for the psychotherapists because for me, psychology, it was very kind of – it was stats and rats, yeah. you know. It was very much so um, 
I hate to say this, but my my lived experience and then my personal experience in understanding psychology is we it operates very much on the surface. Mm-hmm. And it's the symptom managing mm-hmm. way of operating. It's, it's that very medical yeah. um, lens through which you see, yeah. you know, illness. And even the word illness. Yeah. You know, the psychotherapists don't necessarily see um, challenges as wrong. They see them as um, unhelpful but not as though you have something inherently wrong with you. And it might sound pedantic, but it really does matter. Yeah, Yeah. it really does. It really, really, really does. And I think Medicare doesn't help because Mm. Medicare, you know, it's just this you get six to ten sessions and there's a lot of pressure for people to be healed and fixed in six to ten sessions and then – where do they go? Okay, so they can either go to paying full fee sessions, which is a lot more money, mm. or they drop out, you know, and then they fall back into the system. They fall back into old patterns because yeah. all you've really done is symptom manage for that period of time that yeah. you're in therapy, mm. you know. I have worked in that model. I actually worked in that model for a few years. Um, I worked in CBT for a few years. Mm. And for those of you who don't know, it's cognitive behavior therapy. And that is a very dominant psychological model where- And it's great. It has its place. It does work. It does work. I saw, I used to run group therapy in CBT Mm. and it does work. But I also used to think to myself, I used to integrate a lot of psychotherapy into it. <laughs> um, and but it does work. It, it does. does work. It, it does. does work on the pretense of let's like you know let's look at your thoughts, let's look at your behaviours, and let's look at how it's actually manifesting into yeah. your life. But my big question and the reason that I wanted to go into psychotherapy was why. Mm. Like why? And I also find that psycho uh, that sorry CBT is almost like the prerequisite to do the deep work. Like you cannot unpack the family stuff and the underlying unconscious beliefs and the maladaptive coping patterns if you're not even aware of your thoughts. And it's almost like going back to the start and saying, do you know that you're not your thoughts? And I think sometimes, this is what I found for myself, I think because we've been doing this work for so long that it's such a it's so obvious to us now, the idea of, well, look at that thought. I noticed and identified that thought and that thought was unhelpful. Like that is just such a normal, um, I guess, pattern for us at this point of time that we forget how revolutionary that that is. For people. Oh, let me speak for myself. I forgot how revolutionary that was for, for people. and But it was revolutionary for me at the time. So I do want to give credit where credit's due. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. And I would actually have a lot of people at that time of when I was working in anxiety and CBT – Um, I would have a lot of clients coming to me wanting to do the deeper trauma work and wanting to really go to some pretty dark places. But they were so dysregulated Mm -hmm. and they were so – they were just so not contained. They were so disconnected to self and to their experience that having that – I can now work without that CBT as that first, those first couple of steps. But back then it was really helpful for me also to feel a bit more comfortable 
as a slow stepping stone to go to the darker stuff, mm. but also for the client to start to, it's like these small bite-sized chunks to understand in a quite safe way yeah. themselves a bit more before they start, you know, like I say, getting into the time machine and going right mm. back to when it all began, yeah. you know. So I think that it's a great, it really is, There's a there's a place for it, there's room for it. But I think in combination with psychotherapy, mm. that's where the magic happens, mm. you know. I mm-hmm. don't, me personally as a clinician, I don't see the benefit in just doing CBT long term. Mm. Um, but I do believe that that in combination with the deeper work, um, it's great. Mm. Yeah. It's magical. I kind of want to get straight into it because it's such a good segue. You say to get into the deep work. What does that work look like for you? Like what modalities do you use with people? What is it that you would kind of lead them through or into? So, yes, I have specialized my my practice and my the way that I work in trauma. Mm. Um which is a massive huge 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 umbrella term for so many different manifestations. Um I got really excited at the beginning of, you know, doing this work I wanted to just you know kind of when you want to just do everything mm-hmm. you're like I want to be an EMDR therapist and I want to be a parts therapist mm-hmm. and I want to you know do all, I think I've said to you a million times do you want to do a parts training next year <laughs> the answer is yes I do <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do a gestalt training next year like you and I were going to go and do a gestalt what was it a camp I know we're, we're going to go camping for three days and connect with nature <laughs> yeah I still want to do that I still want to do that too uh, maybe I'll have to bring my baby when uh, we do it yeah guys she's <laughs> pregnant <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. We would have a great relationship. <laughs> oh, I'm getting that. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, so trauma, I mean, there's a, it's a huge framework. framework and um, I got into it be- – I actually – it's interesting. I did my thesis at uni on body image. Mm. So I did my thesis thinking I was going to go and specialise in eating disorders. Like that for me – I was always fascinated in it. In I was always fascinated in the in how it manifested, in what went into it, in how complex and challenging eating disorders yes. are to treat. Yes. The most fatal of all disorders. Really? Yeah, they really, really are. And I mean, I was passionate about mm-hmm. it enough to do my thesis on it. And you did it on male. Yes, I did it on males. Yes. And that was so interesting for me because that is a part of the the evidence and the research that is just so lacking and so small in terms of body image, eating disorders, um, and how big of a population men take up in that. But because it's so under-recorded and reported, Mm -hmm. the stats just aren't there. So it was really, really interesting. Um, But then I finished, finished my thesis and I think because of burnout, because it just really was not fun. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't want to look at eating disorders. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I was just like, I don't know. I don't know why something just happened. And then I started to, obviously, in all of my research with eating disorders, this light bulb moment went off. And I was like, well, eating disorders is a trauma response. Yes. <laughs> you know, like why focus myself on a niche part of trauma mm. when – 
eating disorders is a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's a solution Mm -hmm. for deeper rooted pain. Mm -hmm. At a time that person, that person became so disconnected to self and the energy in their body became so overwhelming that they had to find a solution in terms of control, in terms of distraction, in in terms of self-soothing and eating disorder an eating disorder was the solution. Yeah. Because it gave them what? It gave them an opportunity to control yeah. what they couldn't control. It came, gave them an opportunity to not have to focus on the pain that they were feeling all day, every day. You know, if they could focus on the food, if they could focus on the purging, if they could focus on the binging, if they could focus on whatever that was, it was moving them away from the focus on their much deeper pain and the actual root cause you know and it's the same you know eating disorders is the same coping mechanism that you would see in people that are workaholics in people that self-harm in people that gamble in people that are addicted to sex drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. shopping Mm -hmm. right these are all solutions for much deeper 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 issues Mm. And so the more I kind of, it's just really interesting, the more my eyes were open to this real chronic issue of trauma, um, I just became like I was just like a dog with a bone. Mm. And I really am. Like I'm just so deeply passionate about it. Um I wish that I didn't have to work full time because if I didn't, I would just be, you know, in, I would just be developing myself all the time. And obviously we do and we have to, but like I see these like webinars and I see these trainings and I see these courses and I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. And then it's just overwhelming and you can't, but I've done my fair share of training and upskilling and specializing to be able to know that, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. So, yeah, so does that answer your question? I don't know what you asked. <laughs> I don't think it did, <laughs> but I liked that answer instead. Welcome to Rachel oh, and I. <laughs> um, well, as we look at trauma, I would love to get your definition of trauma because I think trauma is such a buzzword right now, um, which has its benefits because there's obviously more – there's more of an understanding of how trauma um, shows up in mental health. I think perhaps we were kind of in a phase where we were looking too much at cognition, not necessarily enough at the past. Um, so what is your understanding of trauma? That's a good question, Rach, because you're right. There's so much talk and buzz Mm. about it. And there's also so many people throwing out the word like, I'm traumatized. Mm-hmm. That was traumatic. Mm-hmm. No one really actually understanding what it is. And I think another issue around this is that there are a lot of people who are capitalizing on the totally. fact that trauma totally. is in vogue right now. Totally. There are people who say, oh, if I promise to heal trauma or hold this event or this workshop or pay me, you know, go on a payment plan of, you know, four payments of 333 we can heal your childhood trauma, but who have never done any um, any work to make sure that they are qualified Definitely. to do so, which I think yeah. is dangerous. I think it's very dangerous. So um, I just wanted to put that in there because I think that 
it matters that if you are going to unpack your trauma, you do so in the confines of a safe space and to be diligent about who you go to for support. I couldn't agree more. And we talk, you and I talk about this all the time Um, because, you know, in the age of social media and TikTok and all of that stuff, everyone's an expert. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't even say that I'm an expert now. (laughs) Like, you know, I look at some of the mentors that I have and they wouldn't call themselves experts because you can't be. We're all learning, but we've done a shitload of work to get to where we are. To get and the I, qualifications, to get totally. the, to the supervision as well. So the you supervision, don't like alone. I pay so much money, like so much money for supervision. And registration so that if we do <laughs> act unethically, totally. there is a means that people can follow through on to make sure that that's dealt with, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that especially when you're dealing with trauma, it's really dangerous. Mm, mm-hmm. Like maybe if if you're, you know, going to see someone for mindfulness or you're going to see someone for anxiety, okay, maybe. But when you're dealing with trauma where the nervous system, and I'll talk a lot about the nervous system because that's fundamentally what trauma damages, mm. um, not permanently, but it damages, it affects the nervous system. The nervous system, I, I look at the nervous system like this really small, like infant newborn you know, that needs to be treated so delicately. That's a great image. And so beautifully with such care and warmth and compassion and love because if it's not, it learns some really, really bad, bad behaviours and coping Mm. mechanisms, Mm. right? And so if you are treating someone for their trauma with no training or understanding of what could happen to that person, um, it's pretty dangerous, you know, because I think that um, when they when, when clients come to see us, it's one hour of their week or it's one hour of their fortnight. And I always say to my clients, like, this is not this is this is where you learn, but out there is yeah. the therapy. The therapy's out there. So if you're not contained and if you're dysregulated and if we've gone too hard too fast in unraveling things that you've never even been aware of, you're going to leave and I may never see you again, Mm. you know. So to answer your question on what trauma is, so my definition of trauma um, comes from my beautiful – I already know what she's going to say. I'm not against it. I just <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Should we say it at the same time? Okay, yeah. Three. One, two. <laughs> Guys, we are qualified professionals. Countdown. All right. Three, Three two, two, one. Gabo Mate. <laughs> we love you, Gabo Mate. If I wonder are, if you, he'll ever listen to your podcast. Uh, imagine if I had him on. Don't. Um. If you do not make it through your Masters of Psychotherapy without loving one of the three, Gabo Mate, mm-hmm. Esther Perel, yeah. or Brene Brown, <laughs> probably all three. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, mine is definitely Peter Levine as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's true. And yeah. Stephen Porges. But, I mean, those are the three for me. But Gabo is for me. And it's actually – I love that he's now a bit mainstream. Like I have clients – coming to me telling me that they've, you know, they've read his books and they've listened to his podcasts and they listen to Joe Rogan with him. And I'm like, that's amazing. Anyway, my definition of trauma is definitely in line with Gabor's, which is it's a a disconnection to self. Mm. So at some point in your life, 
your body became so overwhelmed with energy. What do you? you I, I want to slow you yep. down because I think sometimes when we speak, we speak in our jargon. Okay. And sorry. Like, no, no, you're fine. I do it as well. What do you mean by energy? Activation, charge, overwhelm. Mm. Stress. Um, stress. Adrenaline. Yes. Cortisol. Yes, exactly. Like what that energy is, is the body, remember the body is can only hold a finite amount of energy, right? Think about when you're running a marathon, like even the most extreme of extremes, eventually they run out of energy if they're not refueling, mm. you know. Mm. So the body can only hold that much until it has to cope otherwise, until it has to like yes. dig into its resources like the adrenaline from the adrenals, you know, mm. like the cortisol, which is just like flushing the system. If we start living off cortisol, it's really, really unhealthy for the body. It's also very, very unhealthy for the nervous system, which then is really unhealthy for the immune system. Because the nervous system and the immune system are like brother and sister, mm. you know. One can't be strong and the other one be weak, you mm. know. They mm. both, if one's strong, the other one's strong. Mm -hmm. If one's weak, the other one's weak. So as you would see, a lot of people who are chronically stressed probably are really sick, mm. you know, take a lot of sick days, fatigue, all of that stuff. A lot of autoimmune issues. A lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I say it's an it's an overwhelm of energy in the body, is it overwhelm of anything, like an overwhelm of activation, charge, stress, mm. fatigue, whatever it is, right? Mm. Where the body just couldn't cope. Yeah. And the body had to look for other resources. Yeah. I heard something the other day which was really interesting, which defined trauma as a lack of resources. Okay. So what they what they look at as well with resources is it's a lack of so resources could be a lack of love, a lack of connection, a lack of support, yeah. a lack of community, a lack of um space, a lack of time, right? All of these things are resources and if you don't have that, then the system is your nervous system is much more likely to um imprint the traumatic event. Yeah. So long story short, for me, the definition of trauma is a disconnection to self at a time where the energy in the body is just too overwhelming for the body to handle. Mm. And as you would hear, I'm talking a lot about the body because yes. trauma does not live in the mind. No. does not live in the brain. Um, it's in the body. Mm. So the body yeah. keeps the score. Yeah. Um, so when you say a disconnection from self, what would a connection to self look like and entail? Yeah, good question. So I love it when you praise me. Uh, you're so smart. Thank you. <laughs> <Keep doing it. laughs> um, so a connection to self is it reminds me of, I don't know how kind of um, theoretical you want me to go in this Get podcast. Nerdy. Get nerdy. Go, go in there. There's a really beautiful framework which – I work a lot with. It's probably the framework that I work the most with, which is polyvagal theory. Mm. And Stephen Porges speaks about this ladder, okay? So it's like this ladder which is all based around the vagus nerve. And your vagus nerve is responsible, all right, is responsible for to be regulated, mm -hmm. right, to be connected to self. And it runs from the very bottom of the brainstem all the way down your spine, 
right? So if you think about the amount of space that that's taking up, it's taking up a huge amount of space in the body. It's pretty much consuming the whole body, right? And the vagus nerve, as I said, is responsible for connection, regulation, you know, connection to self and others. Mm. Now, when the vagus nerve is not in what we call that ventral vagal state, which is in, which is what we call social engagement, Mm -hmm. right? When we can be connected, connected to ourselves, connected to others, we can interact with the world. We can then come back and be okay in our own space. You know, we can kind of fluctuate between the two spaces of inward and outward. Exactly. Mm hundred percent. When we don't have that ability something's happened in the nervous system. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be trauma, right? It doesn't have to be trauma. And I'll get into the different types of trauma, which I know you wanted to talk about Mm. in a second, because it doesn't have to be that you were neglected or abused or raped or assaulted to leave that social engagement place, that place where your vagus nerve is really happy, right? But something's happened to get you out of that state. So we can either go up the ladder, which is where we find the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners do know about Mm -hmm. the fight or flight response. Um, But if if they don't, the fight or flight response is what we're talking about with with energy, Mm. that charge, when there's too much charge, right? There's too much charge in the nervous system. Mm. So that's where anxiety lives. So anxiety is that real upward sensation. Yeah, moving into action. Yeah, it's like there's so many thoughts. Your mind is racing with thoughts, right? Racing. Um, Am I going to be late for my appointment? Oh, my gosh, there's traffic. Is there traffic? I don't know. Should I check the app? I don't know. Oh, my gosh, is it raining? The doctor's going to be so late. uh, Mad with me. Do I have – yeah. Do I have my do I have my work stuff? Don't have my work stuff. Should I come home before the meeting? Oh, maybe I should. I don't know. Where's my car? Where did I park my car? Oh, my gosh, where are my keys? Right? It's that like frantic energy, yeah, where the heart is pumping, the lungs are literally bursting, trying to breathe as much as we can. Mm. Our palms are sweating, Mm. you know, like that real pit in our tummy. You know, we can't relax. Like even when we try and take a deep breath, it's like all in the chest, all in the shoulders. We can't access the belly or the diaphragm. It's just, it's chaos. And I do just want to say though that the – before we talk too much shit about the fight or flight response, the fight or flight response is not inherently a bad Not at thing. all, no. Um, it is a, um, I guess, evolutionary development yeah. that kept us safe because we want to be able to move into action very quickly without having to think if the situation asks us to do so, right? If if I'm about to get attacked by a dog, I don't want to have to stop and think and be like, okay, you're going to need to run. It's it happens without my, I guess, consent or my permission or my participation. My body kind of kicks in and takes over. And that is really useful in some situations if you're getting mugged. Sometimes even if you're in a fight, right? Like being really activated and switched on. But when it becomes problematic is when it no longer suits the situation. Like you said, I'm in the car driving to work. I have a meeting or an appointment, but I really do feel like I'm being chased by a bear. The stakes really do feel that high and so it's when being in fight or flight 
is no longer appropriate to the situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even in relationships, you know, being in fight or flight and having that anxiety in relationships can also be quite damaging. Absolutely. You know? I think, a, you know, if we think about couples therapy, I think a big part, if you were to get like nerdy and trauma lensy about it, um, I think a big part of communication is learning how to get people out of fight or flight so that they can actually communicate with their prefrontal cortex. So that they can come into social engagement, right? Yeah, Yeah, perfect. Yeah. 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 And so I agree with you, Rach. I think that, you know, anxiety is an inbuilt human function. Mm. There's never going to be a time or a world where we don't have anxiety because it does keep us safe. I actually had a really beautiful um, reframe moment for myself. I was in the shower. I don't know why, but – I was, I'm really big on parts work right now. That's the phase that I'm going through. Um, And parts work says that all these different parts of yourself are here to protect and serve you. And it's all in your best interest to keep you alive and to keep you functioning. Even the parts of ourselves that might seem like they are sabotaging where we want to be. And when I think about anxiety, when I really peel back and I talk to the anxious part of myself, what I always see is there is a version of myself that is really scared and that doesn't want me to be hurt or ashamed or, um, you know, left out or whatever it is. And I just, it clicked for me. I was like, my anxiety doesn't want me to feel anxious. It wants me to feel prepared. It wants me to know that there might be danger around the corner. And it's saying to me, Hey, like, look out, there might be this thing. Like I got you. Like it loves me. It's trying to look out to me. But then it gets to a point where if I don't listen to it, then it starts, you know, like I always give this analogy, it starts banging on the door rather than whispering. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's it's so true. It, it really is true, Rach. I think that it's got a, it's got a really beautiful function, you know, as does the other end of the ladder, Okay, so we've spoken about this really beautiful ventral vagal, which is social engagement, where we connect to self, we can connect to others. Yesterday I was teaching polyvagal theory in a workshop. Yeah. (laughs) And I forgot the word vagal and started calling it the vagus nerve. (laughs) What is it? Like F E G A S. I spelt it on a whiteboard. The The, what? The vagus nerve. F E G A S. (laughs) The vagus. The vagus. Vagus. Like it's in Vegas. I know. <laughs> Sorry, that took me a while to get. It's like the Vegas nerve. Oh, and I just wow. stared at it. I was like, that doesn't look right. And then after a while, I was like, ah. Because <laughs> you know how it's like ventral vagal? Yeah. Vagal? yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Anyway. Yeah. So then we go down the ladder. So we've left social engagement, which is, you know, ventral vagal, which is when we are socially engaged and connected. We can either go up the ladder when our system is highly activated all right depending on what type of what's happened depending on what our temperament what our makeup is our coping mechanisms right everyone's different or we can go down the ladder and down the ladder is this place where it's the opposite of fight or flight you know dorsal shutdown collapse when we're completely immobilized, we it's like we have nothing left. Yeah, we withdraw, we become a shell of ourselves. Yeah, nothing left. We just pull the doona over our heads and we're like, we're done. And in this state, unlike fight or flight, there's brain fog, our prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for all of our executive functioning, you know, problem solving, decision making, mm. decisiveness, all of that stuff 
just shuts off. Mm. It just says, I can't. I can't. And that's why a lot of people who I see come in that state Mm. uh, have learned or have lived most of their lives in dorsal where the brain is foggy, they live in procrastination, they live in withdrawal, they are stuck. Stuckness is a very, very big part of dorsal, Mm. very, very, very big part. And it's a very hard place to be but the the interesting part of dorsal is it's got these two parts to it. It's got one part sympathetic energy, which is our fight or flight, mm. and it's got one part parasympathetic energy, which are, which is where we often will find the energy system in dorsal. So what that means in just simple terms is it's when we're stuck, our brain keeps saying to us, do the thing, mm. yeah, do the thing. And then our nervous system says, I can't. Yeah. Like our body says, I can't. Mm. So do the thing is the fight or flight, is the anxiety, is the sympathetic energy. Do the thing. Action. Go forward. Go do it. But the stuckness, right, and the dorsal part of us and the lethargy and the fatigue and the negative beliefs and the world is just too much says, I can't. And so then you're in conflict. Then we're in conflict and that's where we freeze, yeah, that's where we freeze. Do the thing. No, I can't. Do the thing. No, I can't. And then shame comes from that because it's like I know what I need to do. It's just too hard. And Why then can't I do it? Yeah. And then the, the personalization of like it's because I'm a failure. It's because totally. I'm X Y Z as opposed to being able to see what it is that's actually that's right driving all of this underneath. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I could go on about polyvagal theory for a long time because I think it's a really beautiful way to describe mm. the trauma response. Mm. Um. But basically, when you ask, you know, define trauma, what is connection to self? We've got to use this theory to understand when has someone disconnected to self and others to find their way back to self, to find their way back to social engagement, to find their way back to being able to integrate with not only the world, but in order to integrate with the world, you have to integrate with yourself first, right? Am I correct? I haven't touched polyvagal theory in a little while. Am I correct in thinking that if you're moving up the ladder, so you start in um, ventrovagal, the socially engaged, up towards sympathetic, and then when the sympathetic com- becomes too much, you then move into dorsal vagal? It's not one way or the other. Oh, okay. But I always like to see it because just in clinic, I see a lot of what goes up must come down. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. No. Do you know what? I, I think of this analogy all the time about when people shut down and that when people are shut down and numbed out, it's not because there's nothing there. It's because there's so much there. Totally. And I think about when I got a tattoo on my hip and the first like five, 10 minutes were excruciating. Like mm. I was dripping sweat, just lying down. Mm. I was clenching my jaw. All my muscles were tensed and my thoughts were racing. And I was like, I'm not, I can't. I've got to finish this tattoo. I can't leave, right? So the option of removing myself from the pain was not available. And what happened was after five or 10 minutes, my hip just numbed out. Mm. And I said, thank you. Thank you, body. That's really smart because it said, okay, you can't get out. So I'll take over and I'm going to numb you from the pain. And I think that that's what happens emotionally. There's so much pain, discomfort, overwhelm, and we can't escape it. So it says, well, I'll just put a blanket over all of it so that you don't have to feel any of it. And I think whenever I see someone who is 
in that down overwhelmed state. Sometimes you can assume like, oh, wow, there's nothing really going on with them. It's like there is so much. Yeah. There is so much there. Yeah. That reminds me of Sarah Baldwin, who is another one of my mentors, Rach, who is a complex trauma survivor. Um. And she talks a lot about the nervous system being a really protective and beautiful part of us that when we don't have any other choice, it overrides all of our nice-to-haves, I'll call it, and it just keeps us in protection. So what that means is... I'll give you an example of what she talks about. When she was young, she was really badly sexually abused for years and years and years by a primary caregiver and multiple primary caregivers actually because she had lots of different stepfathers in her life. Um, And she talks about her nervous system stepping in when she was really little because she couldn't run away because that was way too scary and not a possibility. And she certainly couldn't fight. She couldn't fight this older person. And so her nervous system took over and her nervous system took over and in the actual event of when she was being abused, she no longer knew if she was hungry. She no longer knew where she was. She no longer knew, you know, what her physical body felt like because her nervous system just stepped in. She uses the beautiful language like she says, don't worry, my darling, I've got you. Mm. Oh, my God, that just gave me shivers. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's what our nervous system does. Oh, oh, my God. That is such a powerful reframe. Yeah. That is such a powerful yeah. reframe. That just hit me. Your nervous system is not there to annoy you. No. You know, oftentimes we think of anxiety as this thing that gets in the way. Mm. You know, oh, i got to get rid of my anxiety. Oh, I'm so anxious. Yeah. Same with depression. Like they're these things that we have to battle. But it was really the body in the only language that it knows saying, yep. hey, I'm doing the best that I can. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And then the nervous system really takes over and it thinks, okay, this is the status quo now. I need to protect you, right? I need to protect you at all costs. Even when she was safe, her nervous system wanted to protect her. So she had to learn how to retrain her nervous system that hold on a second, we're not in that really scary, life-threatening, vulnerable, exposed event anymore. We are here with our new partner having a normal back and forth conversation mm. and my nervous system doesn't need to override me where I dissociate and I disconnect and I'm no longer sitting in front of someone, right? I can actually show my nervous system that I'm here sitting across from someone that I love and I Mm. trust who's Mm. not going to hurt me. Yes, maybe we're having some conflict, but it's not unsafe. Mm. And so a big thing that I teach my clients because of her actually is her biggest motto is your nervous system needs to be shown, not told. Oh, 
She's yes. amazing. She's amazing. Okay, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because you're so right. How often do we sit there and say, I should be over this? Yeah. Why am I reacting like totally. this? Why am I freaking out that my boss is calling me in for a mm-hmm. meeting? If she's clearly not my abusive mother. That's like, right. And then, and then the self, you know, the, mm-hmm. the shame starts and the yeah. I should be over this. Wow. The nervousness system needs to be shown and not told. And that's why I have interpreted that as that's the reason why I don't like affirmations. <laughs> you don't like affirmations? Like, sorry to break it I love to you. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fair. They've never worked for me. If you go to my fridge now, they're all over my fridge. Like mm. I've tried, trust me, I've tried. You know, like I've really tried to have affirmations to tell myself these things. You know, it's right next to my water filter when I'm filling up my water bottle. And I still, I look at them, but they don't land because I feel like it's it's telling myself things that my body necessarily doesn't believe yet. And I think that's one of kind of coming back, one of my issues with cognitive behavior therapy. That's right. Which is like telling your cognitive distortions you're wrong. And it's like, well, you can't fix a a feeling problem with thoughts and words. That's right. Can I – I want to challenge you for the sake of refining. Yeah. So um, when I was doing visualizations, because I quite like – I personally find them helpful. I don't give them to clients because I know – What, affirmations? Yeah. Yeah. That – you say it and you not only say it but you visualize it mm-hmm. as though it's true because the mind can't tell the difference between a thought and something real mm-hmm. so say for example um you know the thought is i don't know you are loved or you know you are wanted whatever it is and saying it in a way and visualizing the people that could mm. love you or do love you or mm. what would it feel like inside you to know you were loved where would you feel that in your body mm-hmm. and creating that physical internal state so it's not a cognitive thing mm. it's a it's a bodily thing that being said i know that it doesn't work for a lot of people which is why i don't yeah. because they can come but can become gaslighty Listen, I think that what you're saying for me is more self-compassion, right? Like it's it's more self-compassion where you are very – you are saying it in a way that you're attuned to your body. I'm trying to think right? of like I would say something like you are safe and I'd put my hands over myself. I'm yes. Like, you are safe and it's the words that I Absolutely. need to hear. And yeah. that's being attuned to your body. But standing in front of the mirror like it's taught on TikTok <laughs> – to stand in front of the mirror in your power pose, right? Which I love the power pose, by the way. What's um, the power pose? The power pose is when you literally – I actually learned this in my corporate life. You stand in front of the mirror. Oh, it's not even in the mirror sometimes. Like we got taught like if you're having a moment where you need to just like come back into your body, come back into yourself, you can go into the bathroom, you can go into a cubicle, you can go into a, a boardroom or whatever and you stand there like, a, like you stand there like you're in – like legs open, arms open, chest pulled back, yeah. shoulders down, chin up, and you stand there and you hold this really strong pose, like embodied in yourself. Mm. And that I love because it's a it's a it's a body, it's a somatic exercise, yeah. right? So I love that. But for me, standing in front of the mirror and saying, I'm brave, I'm courageous, um, I'm loved, I'm safe over and over and over again, it, when every single cell, like the evidence of trauma is that trauma lives in your mitochondria, which is the cells in your body, and there are billions of them. Mm. How can just those words saying it override 
that. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. No, for I you, get you. Yeah, I get you. Your description of it for me was very somatic. And when I say somatic, guys, I'm talking about the body. I'm talking about connecting to it. Like when I say I'm loved, I may close down my eyes and I may not feel that in my body, which is bringing out that sadness, which is bringing out that dorsal shutdown in me which is prompting me to withdraw even more because I'm so hurt and fragile. But from what you're saying, I think it's really beautiful to imagine, even though it might be quite hard for people to imagine, what would it be like and what would it feel like? And then that self-compassion piece of, okay, maybe I need to give a little bit of that to myself first and to bring it full circle, that's the answer to your question, that's what connection to self is. Yeah, wow. Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. So I think that just coming from affirmations from a cognitive perspective, in my this is this is purely my experience. Yeah, everyone has a different experience. Very different. Different. Yep. I may get completely hated on, so I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry if you lose followers. There's a clinical After psychologist <laughs> listening to this podcast fuming. I'm sorry. Fucking fuming. <laughs> um, listen, it's not for everyone and I'm not for everyone. No. But, yep. um, you know, that's just my perspective because I want people to just connect with their felt sense, which is their body and how that feels and to do that we have to show our nervous system not, not tell it yeah when you say connect to how you feel can you help me to understand this a little bit better and I do know what you're talking about but just to help people explain I think one thing that's really common for us as therapists is that we ask a client how they felt about that and they'll give a word that means nothing fine good yeah whatever bad and then you kind of dig and they're not – they don't know how they feel. They don't have the language. You ask them to scan their body. Is there any tension? And it's the answer's no. That's what you mean by a, a sense of connection to self-right. Absolutely. Self, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I have to go back to basics and get out like the, the word chart, the, the, the images, the facial expressions of what like, you know, kids on the spectrum, for example, get mm -hmm. taught mm -hmm. and younger kids. And, you know, because you've got to go back to basics on what emotions are yeah and learning the language as well you know and it's not a it's not your fault that at whatever age you don't know how to identify your emotions because mm. you never learnt those words mm. that was a skill that was never passed on to that's you. right if every time you cried as a child you were told shut up or i'll give you something to cry about yeah. as opposed to what's wrong sweetheart where mm. are you feeling it oh i know that this must be really upsetting and frustrating right yeah. now that's okay i get frustrated yeah. as well then that emotion is never developed. And I remember one thing that my supervisor, Gail, mm -hmm. Gail's also Gail. Kayla's supervisor. <laughs> Shout out to Gail. This is just like the Gail fan club podcast. Um, one thing that she said to me that changed the game for me was that there is a big difference between someone's biological age and their emotional age. Someone, a 50-year-old can come and sit in your yep. office and you go, oh, my gosh, they're 50. They know all these things about their, about life. Mm. But emotionally, they might be about seven years old. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where their emotional development stopped. And so they don't know how to process and to handle mm. their emotions in the way that a 50-year-old would. Yeah. And so don't take it on face value. Just because someone is X age, don't assume that they so have true. that because emotional development is something that has to be taught. It's not, it's yeah. not always a given. Um, 
Yeah. And so, I mean, another thing that comes to mind with emotions is forget about basic needs of a child being, you know, housed and fed and warm and all of that stuff. Cause those are, you know, the hierarchy of needs, of course, but from a trauma perspective, again, Gabor talks a lot about this is one of a child, one of children's fundamental needs is to be able to experience the full range of their emotions. Oof, yes. Right? Yes. So if a child, like what you were saying, has to hide or stop or suppress or be scared of a feeling that's coming up for them, because remember, kids feel so much. They may not necessarily have the language to say this is anger, this mm. is sadness, but mm. they can feel that emotion. <laughs> If that's hindered by their primary caregivers or by their nurturing, they're not going to be able to experience the full range of emotion. If a if a primary caregiver or a nurture uh, the nurturing environment allows for that and allows for the child to be sad, maybe yes, allows for the child to be angry because anger is a really helpful emotion. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's and an action emotion. It's helpful, yeah. right? You can do a lot with anger then the child learns this is safe and I can understand that this is anger because I'm allowed to feel it and I know now what it feels like. It's not like this really deep, dark, ugly monster that I have to hide away from the world because I was never allowed for it to come up. Anger is righteous. You know, mm. anger shows you where your boundaries and your values are. And anger is there to say to you, hey, something's not right. We're yeah. getting taken advantage of. Something, mm. something is unfair. And it's, you know, we're angry about the things that we care about. Yeah. You know, we get angry when someone is is rude to a child or kicks a dog or whatever it is. It says that is unacceptable. Yeah. And the anger tries to push us into yeah. motion. And I think one of the challenges is that anger and aggression get confused. Mm. You know, aggression is the behavior, which is not acceptable. Anger it, anger can be expressed in tears. Yeah. Anger can be expressed in, in music, in shaking your body, in writing. Aggression is when it starts to become dysfunctional. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. It was such a, a shift for me when I realized that all emotions have a – they all have something to tell me and to show me. And I think we can get into the tendency to kind of put emotions into the binary of good or bad. I want to feel joy. I want to feel connection. I want to feel yeah. love. I want to feel optimism. I do not want to feel shame or jealousy or grief or abandonment. And we say, you know, we push away and we try and minimize the difficult stuff and we try and chase and increase the stuff that feels good. And that is the human tendency, right? Move away from pain and towards pleasure. But the reality is that life is going to dish us up a bunch of shit. Like built into being a human is loss, is suffering, struggle, challenge, disappointment. And I think that the answer to that is to consent to that being the reality, is to not say, yeah, something is wrong, life has done me dirty, is to say, no, this is how it's supposed to be. Okay. I'm okay with that. I accept that. And then learning to get good at the uncomfortable emotions because I don't know about you, but I had an experience of grief that was the most in love I have ever been. Because when you peel back grief, what you see is love. You know, when you peel back anger, what you see is a sense of, of justice. 
or a sense of protection. Yeah, absolutely. When you peel back sadness, yeah. what you see is disappointment and mm-hmm. um, resentment. Yeah, yeah. And so all of it is here to show us stuff. Mm. And if you can be okay with being uncomfortable with while it's talking to you, it moves quickly. Yeah. 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 And Rachel, exactly what you've just said is the very essence of why I wanted to be a psychotherapist mm. because that is the why. You know how I said I was just always fascinated of the why. Why is that person sad? Yeah. Well, not just because they are going through a breakup. Okay. Well, what what is that breakup meaning yeah. to them, about them? What are the belief systems that are coming up about them, right? Because the guarantee is that there's probably a high chance that those belief systems were there before the breakup too, mm. you know, not wow. saying that you're not allowed to mourn a breakup. Of course, it's horrible, but what's the why, you know? What's the big why underneath the experience under the emotion and that's really where the the beauty lies you know like where you spoke about the onion and peeling the layers back it's not just about slicing through the onion Mm. it's peeling the layers back Mm. slowly gently you know at the pace that the nervous system wants to go Mm. you know like I always say to my clients you are in the driver's seat here I use the analogy of you know when you're getting your L's and you get a a driving teacher and they sitting next to you and they've still got pedals and they can, you know, they can keep you safe, but you're driving the car, Mm. you know, you're steering it, you know, only in an emergency does the teacher slam on the brakes or whatever it is. And that's our role, you know, is that the client is in the driver's seat and they're steering this vehicle and we are really there to really get them to speed up or slow down or whatever it is according to what we're noticing in their nervous system. Or pause and go down that street. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I think that's also why, you know, when Medicare is like, okay, here's your six sessions, it's like, well, some people you can do some work in six sessions, some people Mm. might take six months or longer, you know, and it's it really depends on where the person is at and how much they voluntarily um, participate in the therapeutic process, yeah. you know, the more that you show up, the more that you are consistent, the more that you share from a, in, in a way that feels safe. You know, I don't think you need to rush and share everything if it feels too much, because we need to also earn your trust. Um, you know, the more you get out of therapy, like I remember for a long time when I saw Gail, I wouldn't tell her everything. I was scared she was going to judge me. Of course. And then it got to the point where I was like, I just have to take the risk because if I don't tell her what's going on, then this session's a waste. Totally. And I had to say the thing. And when she didn't judge me or call me names, I was like, oh, I can do this. And then we had a really productive session. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to touch on as well um, about trauma and what trauma is and what it isn't. So I think one really useful distinction that we get taught in trauma is trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T. So if you could just like run people through what that means. Yeah, of course. So I think I touched on this a little bit earlier is that, you know, not everything that is considered trauma or traumatic, number one, it's not going to be the same for everyone, Mm -hmm. right? So one person experiences a car accident and they may that may not imprint as a traumatic memory for them and another person may have a car accident and certainly may have a traumatic response mm. now 
Big T's and little T's help us understand trauma a lot more because a lot of people do feel that sense of, well, I wasn't raped and I wasn't abused, so what's the big deal here, Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? There's a lot of self-judgment. There's a lot of shame in them having a traumatic response to an event that occurred but understanding what society tells us about trauma, well, you didn't have an abusive childhood and nothing overly crazy happened to you, so what's wrong with you? Get over it. So that brings us into, well, they're not just big T traumas. The big T traumas are real big life events. Things Those that, big one-off events or maybe maybe more than one-off. Or multiple, the, you yeah, know, like yeah. the – you know, natural disasters is one, mm-hmm. right? Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse. Being assaulted. Exactly. Neglect. A um, divorce even. I mean, divorce for me falls into little t. Does it? Mm. Okay. I think depending on what came with the divorce. Okay. I think if there was kind of, to be honest, if it was just, you know, parents separating and it's quite amicable and it's obviously hard for the development of the child, I still would put that into the little T box where I would put it into – What about a personal – like what if you went through the divorce? Depending on, you know, this is why it depends on the person. Well, yeah. yeah. Like I think that if, you know, I see couples all the time, not couples together, but I see a partner of a couple who is going through a divorce – And it hasn't even been a traumatic response for them. Like I will give them a psychoeducation around trauma because that's what I do. And they'll say, genuinely, I'm okay. Mm. Like I'm okay. And yes, there's grief in there and there's sadness and there's loss. It's not traumatic. But there's no trauma. Whereas I think if there's abuse, if there's uh, coercive control, if there's, um, you know, infidelity – that kind of stuff, then that can certainly lead to your big T traumas. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, The little T traumas are still the things that have an effect on your nervous system. They still disconnect you from yourself, okay, which obviously leads you disconnecting to others because the overwhelm, the stress, the charge, the energy, like I said before, in the body and the nervous system is just too much Mm. so examples of that are you know when kids move from school to school school to school school to school bullying financial loss immigration right moving house um divorce breakup right um being made redundant a lot of these factors still have a very overwhelming response on the nervous system Mm -hmm. in a way that we don't know how to handle. Mm -hmm. Now, the big part about trauma, which is really beautiful for me to witness in clients' experiences is that, and a lot of the evidence does support this, is that a traumatic event is going to be imprinted in the psyche not necessarily by the event that occurred itself, right? Mm. So not necessarily – it's not necessarily the going through a breakup because your partner cheated on you that's going to create the traumatic event being imprinted in your your psyche, right, in your memory, but it's the support and the connection that you have after the event – Mm -hmm. that either leads to the trauma being imprinted 
or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that again is ventral vagal, which is social engagement and connection. Mm. Okay. If you have connection, if you have people, it doesn't need to be many, it can be one. Mm-hmm. On the other side of that traumatic event that can hold you, that can sit with you, that can comfort you, that you can just be safe with, right, then that traumatic event is less likely, sometimes it will, but is less likely to form. And that's how important social engagement and connection, and connection. is, yes, um, especially when you're looking at trauma. Because if you think about what trauma is, it's a lack of safety. Mm. It's a lack of safety at the time of the event and it's a lack of safety after the event. Mm. It's a lack of safety in your own body. It's a lack of safety with others. Mm. If you have safety, then that trauma, yes, it can still imprint as a, an adverse negative experience that you've had, but it's very different to it creating a traumatic response in in your mind, in your body, in those mitochondria and those cells that we have in our body. Mm, mm. So does that help? Does yeah, that make sense? Absolutely. And I think um, one of the beautiful things, because you keep saying the beautiful thing about trauma, which sounds paradoxical, but what I think one of the beautiful things about trauma is, is that if met with compassion, which is what you're talking about. If when you go through something difficult, you can turn to a few people around you that love you and share your story and lean on them, that on the other side is so much growth. And I know that um, Mary Huang, the owner of the Indigo Project, wrote a book and I'm I can't remember exactly the title, but it's something like the light in the darkness or something like that. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, But she talks about just how um, transformative and impactful difficult situations can be if we know how to manage them, if we know how to navigate them. Um, And it's funny because I'm at a point in my life where I look at all the things that I like about myself And when I look at where I got that trait from, not necessarily, but a lot of them developed in adversity. You know, we really see others and ourselves in difficult times. We see our limits. We see our true self. And oftentimes, you know, there's a difficult period. I have to navigate it. And I'm like, wow, I like the person who navigated that. I like who I had to become in order for me to make it through the other side. And that part of me wouldn't have been called to action or called out unless I was put into that situation. And then I think I'm now at a point where, you know, when the next challenge comes up, I know what's on the other side of it. And I'm like, cool, what are you here to show me? It's like this very like two arms open, like, I'm, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I know this is going to suck. Let's go. I'm here. I'm into it. Like I know that I have the skills, I have the capacity and I have the support to get through difficult stuff. And that feeling makes you feel so empowered Yeah. because I always, you know, I always say to my clients, you know, it's not about minimizing the struggling. It's about getting good at it. It's like if you're if you're a surfer, you become a better surfer not by making the waves smaller, but by yeah. learning how to ride those waves. And yeah. so when they get bigger and they take you over, you're like, I know how to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like exposure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the more you do something, yeah, um, in really small, tolerable steps, 
And that's showing your nervous system rather than telling. That's it. Yeah. So when we do something in small, tolerable steps, otherwise known as bite-sized chunks, Mm. you know, it's exposing us to the thing that was once unbearable, Mm. that was once – Or that has a tinge of it because it's not necessarily – like conflict, for example. Mm. You were saying the Sarah Baldwin example. Her her first or her, I guess, main experience of conflict was disastrous. Mm. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. And so now anything that resembles conflict gets thrown kind of in that basket. That's right. Yeah. And so it's learning how to tease apart mm. and say, well, there's, there is a different way to experience conflict. Yeah, that's and right. And we're not going to put you like on family feud <clears throat> and make you fight it out. <laughs> Your nervous system is not going <laughs> to yeah. consent to that. Yeah. But how can we maybe start nice and small? Yeah. And that's, you know, what you've just described is the concept of neuroception. And what neuroception is, it's like our database in our nervous system, right? So if we go back to Sarah's example, her first experience of conflict was really catastrophic, okay? So her nervous system her nervous system um, filed that, you know, filed that in the database. And then the next event of assault came and it filed it in the database. And it acted as confirmation for the first, yeah. I guess, judgment of that first conflict there you go yeah and then the second and the third and the hundredth event adverse event came and stored filed in her nervous system as you know this is what conflict is Mm -hmm. right so then she's sitting across from her partner and neuroception kicks in all right, which is our nervous system's database, database, and it starts scanning, 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 scanning. And it pulls out all the files and it says, here you go. Here's the reason that you should protect yourself right now mm. because of all these 100 other times that when you couldn't protect yourself, the bad things happened. And I love you and I'm looking out for you. That's why I'm telling you. Exactly. Yeah. So when we show ourselves, hold it, I can sit with my partner, Mm. I connect with him. I ground myself in him, in him. You know, I look into his eyes when he's talking to mm. me. I may look around me to see myself in my apartment here. I'm not back in my hometown. I'm here, right? These are all the things she did. You know, she would feel her feet on the floor. She would touch her clothing, you know. She would have a sip of water. She would try and ground herself mm. in that moment with her partner, even though it was it was filled with conflict, mm. to ground herself in the presence, to say, neuroception, I understand you, I get you, my nervous system, I understand you trying to protect me. But it's almost like that inner child part comes out and we can say to it, I've got this. Oh, my gosh. And I love that analogy of um, I see you. Mm-hmm. I know that you're here to look after me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You've served me so well. Yeah. And you can be in the car with me on this journey, but you're getting in the back seat. Yeah. Because I'm in the driver's seat That's now. That's right. And you can kick and scream and I'm going to say, I love you. I hear you, but you're not in control anymore. I've got this, you know. You and don't need to be in control anymore. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. 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 And I am going to react to this situation in front of me as the current version of myself. Yeah. 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 So it's a, that's why the nervous system is just a wonderful thing to understand because when we can understand it and we know at any given time what state we might be in, 
we can do things, we can show our nervous system how to get out of it. So really practically speaking, so if someone was listening to this podcast and like, great, I'm on board with this nervous system regulation shit that they keep going on about, (laughs) (laughs) what are five or so practical nervous Mm. system regulation tools that they could use? So it depends. It depends if you're up the ladder or down the ladder. Great. Yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with up. So up, so I just want to bring into focus as well for anyone who does breath work here, right? So I do a lot of breath work. So, and I'm missing a lot of it because I'm pregnant and I can't do a lot of it now. (laughs) Bloody child ruining your life already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, before I started to do this type of work, I used to think, okay, one size fits all, you know, breath holds, breath retentions, all that stuff, one size fits all. But if you're holding your breath and you're in a fight or flight state when there's already an abundance of cortisol racing through the system and then you're putting yourself into a stress response, which is a breath hold, it's not necessarily going to help you, Mm. right? Mm. It's, you know, that fire breathing that, you know, in, in yoga there's a lot of that type of breathing, you know, it can, it's obviously going to be better than not doing anything, but it's not the best thing for your nervous system. Mm. So if you're supercharged, if you're, if you're super overwhelmed, there are practices to do to downregulate. Mm-hmm. And if you're super fatigued and melancholic and depressed, mm. they're tools to use to upregulate. Mm. All right. So for example, let's say we're up. Let's say we're anxious, yep. right? Monkey mind, spiraling, you know, just can't get our shit together, yeah. right? And monkey mind is a Buddhist, Buddhist term um, to describe like the racing thoughts, like mm. swinging from one branch, one thought to another. Yeah. Yeah, nonstop. Yep. Thanks, Rach. <laughs> my my interpreter. <laughs> See, she's so smart. <laughs> um, I literally. No, wait, wait, I'm practicing. I'm practicing allowing in love. So thank you. I see you. I receive you. <laughs> Not shut up. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. <laughs> Don't stop. I do this. No. Go on. Sorry. So um, for the anxiety, you know, I know that it sounds cliche, but getting out into nature, oh. right? There's this beautiful concept called the wonder walk, right? Mm. Where you go out. Even if it's just, even if you don't live near, you know, you live in the city and it's just a concrete jungle, leave all devices and go for a wonder Mm. and really notice, like really pay attention. I've actually started to do it on my drive Mm. and I actually have a little look, you know, at people. Obviously, I love people watching and my husband literally gets me into trouble all the time for it because I stare. It's not even about people watching. So you're checking out, guys, and you're like, babe, it's for my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) I stare. (laughs) He's like, you need to put some sunglasses on. (laughs) Um, But, you know, looking at the faces around you, looking at the colour of the trees, you know, looking at the 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 people the objects the the colors um hearing the sounds you know like if you're listening to the radio like really listen to the radio you know Presence when you're driving yeah so the wonder walk is all about that and you're outdoors you're in nature you're getting that fresh oxygen in so that's one thing that down regulates the system when we're quite up especially if you have no shoes on Unless yeah. you're in your concrete jungle, but take your shoes off, spread your totally. toes, feel the earth underneath your feet. Totally, yeah. Um, there's some really beautiful, beautiful somatic tools that you can do for anxiety. Mm-hmm. So 
tapping. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not going to do it because I know some of your listeners won't be watching, mm-hmm. but um, there are very beautiful, important meridian lines that we have in the body and there's some particular parts of the body that connect to those meridian lines which bring our system into a state of down regulation. So one part that you could do is tapping. So taking, you could take all five fingers if you want or Mm. or four and I can't do it with both hands because I have a microphone in one hand but just tapping onto the collarbone and you're just literally being mindful of what the body feels like Mm. as you're tapping. And then you can move it and we bring it a Bring it to our third eye, which is the space in between our two eyes. And then we start to bring it all the way around like we're circling our eyes. And you can do this with both hands. And then there's a really great meridian line, which we call the karate chop, which is like this part of your hand here, which you Mm -hmm. can tap. Mm -hmm. And there's a beautiful butterfly hug which is when you take both hands and you give yourself, like you were talking about before, Rachel, mm. a, a hug, and you cross your hands over your chest mm. and you just start to tap. They do this a lot in EMDR, mm. which is another form of trauma treatment that I'm trained in. And it's a butterfly hug where you cross your hands over your chest and you just tap. And you do that for about a minute. Mm. So tapping, if you know, even if you want to put it in your show notes, I can send you um, mm-hmm. a link to a video, mm-hmm. which is just yep, like 101 be basics. Yeah. Really helpful. Um, swaying. Mm, mm-hmm. So swaying from left foot to right foot, left foot to right foot. When we talk about exercise, exercise for anxiety is really, really good, but we want to be very mindful about what exercise we're doing. Because yeah. if we're already ramped up, then doing a massive throwdown CrossFit session is just going to amp up the system even more, right? So we want to be doing things like yoga. We want to be walking. We want to be stretching, you know. Yeah, you can do a strength workout, but just be mindful of the exertion because we want to be down-regulating. Um, so I was teaching a workshop on the weekend that was about um, mental health and movement. And there's this one exercise that Bev and I have done in quite a few workshops where we get people up and walking around the room and people look at you and go, you want me to walk? Like, this is weird. They get up and everyone's so awkward. People laugh. They're kind of looking down. Everyone's hands are really tight in towards their body. They're really uncomfortable. And we say, stop, you know, shut your eyes down, feel your feet on the earth, you know, start to shake your hands, whatever you're feeling, whatever your body wants to do, do. And then we get them to walk again. Then we get them to stop staring at each other's eyes. Everyone's so uncomfortable. So awkward for people. God forbid you look at someone in the eyes. And then we get them talking and what you notice is – as they continue to walk, as they continue to stop, check in, as they have the first conversation with someone, then the second, their arms all of a sudden aren't glued to their side. They start to swing their arms. When they're talking to people, they're no longer crossing their arms and really closed in. Mm. They're using their hands yeah. to tell the story. They're down-regulating. Yeah. And so, it, and it just, you can see that it opens them up. Just being in your body helps yeah. you to... Um, just feel a little bit more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what's so important because maybe a lot of them were coming with that anxious energy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a um, – it's overwhelming for people to get into their bodies if they've worked 
most of their life to stay outside of it. Oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I love something that you said, um, which was that when it becomes too much for the body, when there's too much energy, when there's too much discomfort, when you always have a sore stomach and tight shoulders and just fight or flight heart racing, your your body will – sorry, you will move up from your body into your mind. Mm-hmm. You stop feeling your life mm-hmm. and you start thinking about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's safe up there. Yeah. Safer. It's safer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess if you think about the brain, that's what the brain's wired to do, right? It's yeah. wired to keep us safe. Mm. Um, so it will err on the side of caution until the cows come home. Mm. Um, but it's not always helpful. Mm. Um, just some tools for the upregulation. Mm. So let's say we've been in, in our dorsal shutdown for a little bit too long, which is that that collapse feeling, mm. that energyless feeling. This is where it's really important to take those tolerable steps towards regulation because too hard, too fast out of dorsal is not helpful either, okay? Mm. So really small things, right? Like even around the house, watering the plants, yeah, unstacking the dishwasher, things that are really low risk, things that are really quite safe, right? So what we want to do, if we remember what dorsal is, it's two parts. It's one part sympathetic, one part um, parasympathetic. We want to be leaning into the, I want to do the thing, right? But we want to try and avoid the, but I can't. So we want to do the thing. So let's say we're quite stuck with sending an email to our boss that we know we need to send and we sit down at the computer, do the thing. The body says, no, I can't do the thing. No, I can't do the thing. So what it may look like to do to get yourself out of dorsal and out of stuckness and it's a step towards regulation, but in a very tolerable way, tolerable steps towards regulation is maybe to sit down, open a word document, right? And just brain dump. Yeah. Yeah. Brain dump. It's not in the formality of an email. It's not. It's not to send. It's in a, and you just brain dump all that you want to say. That's the first step. And maybe that's enough for the day, mm. right? Maybe what you do is you titrate it, which means you do a little bit of that. So maybe you open the email and you write one line, and then you go and do something really neutral, like unstack the dishwasher, mm. and then you come back. And you write another line or another two lines. Mm. And then maybe you go out for the afternoon, right? And then you come back to it. So it's it's little steps towards regulation, but you're still in action. You're not doing nothing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. With dorsal, that's the time that we can bring energy to the system. That's a time that maybe we can bring some breath holds. That's a time that we can maybe bring some, you know, powerful breath to the nervous system yeah because we do need that we need that flush of energy we need that flush of oxygen um exercise you know if we've got the energy we can go for a jog you know if we've got the energy let's go to the gym you know let's listen to some upbeat some lovely good feeling music you know um but whatever it means to get out of dorsal it needs to be tolerable steps because no step is small when you're in dorsal. Mm, that's so true. No yeah. step is small. Yeah. And I really want to stress that to anyone who does feel stuck is that 
no small step out of it is small. So when, as I said before, when we're in dorsal, there's a lot of procrastination that lives there and it just loops and loops and loops and loops. And I'm sure for anyone who does procrastinate, we know how good it feels to even tick one thing off a to-do mm. list, mm-hmm. you know, and that may just be all we can do, you know, but that's enough. And I think about looking at it from a 1% increase standpoint, mm-hmm. not, okay, crap, I need to fix my life because that's too overwhelming yep. for the nervous system. It's like, I want this afternoon to be slightly less shitty than this mm-hmm. morning. Mm-hmm. What's one thing that I can do to make it just a little more tolerable? Yeah. Yeah. And and if you think about our life, it really is the culmination of those small decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And I think that in either when we're if we're up or we're down the ladder, just remembering connection. Yes. You know, is a big regulator. A massive regulator to be able to get us into a bit more of that ventral vagal, which is that regulation, which is that social engagement. So mm-hmm. connection, so connection with others. It doesn't need to be a big social gathering, a no. big party, no. but connection with another nervous system. That is what co-regulation means. If I can regulate of another grounded nervous system that can have an impact on my nervous system. And that might be a therapist. That might be. Totally. That could even be calling something like Lifeline. It can Taylor be. and I both worked at yeah. Lifeline and some, and honestly, most people just want to have a chat. Yeah. Most people that we worked for and worked for, worked with at Lifeline did just wanted company because they were so lonely. They just needed space to mm. share and to be validated. And I think you know, like you said, you don't need 15 amazing friends. Mm-hmm. You need one or two people that knows how to listen. Mm-hmm. And when I think about our friendship, you know, yes, we're both therapists and could easily just sit there and therapize each other, but we don't. No, we don't. And what I actually find so therapeutic about hanging out with you is I can tell you what's going on for me mm. and you say, oh, I see you. Mm. Like I hear you. That sounds so difficult. Tell me more. Mm. There's no advice. Mm -mm. There's no reframe. It's just I'm right here with you as you tell me this and I care about what's going on for you. And we can talk for two hours and nothing has changed physically. Mm. But now that I've shared it with someone and that person cares and Mm. it's no longer a burden that I carry by myself, it no longer feels like it's going to take me out. That's exactly right. And that's something that I say, you know, to my clients all the time is that Doing this type of work and and seeking support and seeking connection, it doesn't necessarily change your life in that moment, right? But it helps us cope much better with it, Mm. right? And seeking that and if we're coping better, then our life will change, Mm. right? But – and that's really the beauty of connection. Mm. And even in terms of connection, it can be a pet, Yes. Right? It can be literally as you stroke your pet, you know, watching your hand move through the hair or the fur and just watching that and just watching your pet. I mean, I have a bunny rabbit (laughs) and I just adore watching him because I feel so calm and so relaxed when I can just stare at my rabbit or you can do what I do is I just trauma dump on my dash hound and she invoices me (laughs) and she just listens she's seen some shit (laughs) she's on Zoloft but that's besides the point (laughs) oh gosh um one thing I think you know if if I could make us unemployed (laughs) 
make us unemployed. Oh, bear with me. <laughs> where is she going? With yeah, this? where is she going? <laughs> if there is one thing that you want to do to improve the quality of your life out of everything, if there was one thing that you take away, it is to develop two to three close, secure relationships in your life. Relationships where you feel validated, where you feel valued, where you feel heard and where, you know, you know that if you had to go to hospital that there would be someone who would rock up and be there. You don't need anything else. You know, you don't need, if you think about what's going to make life meaningful and worthwhile, it's that. It's something's happened to me, good or bad, who am I going to call? And I noticed that with Bev and I getting engaged, it really highlighted to me um, instinctually where I go. Mm. I was like, who was the people that I wanted to tell immediately? Mm. Like when I am in joy and connection and just like at a peak of my life, who did I want to pull into that Mm -hmm. moment with me and have there? And I think, you know, learning to find a few people like that in your life. And it might take time. It might mean that you need to go and learn how to communicate Mm -hmm. first because, you know, so, you know, clients will say to me, I'll say, go and develop some friendships. And they say, yeah, but I, but where? Mm. I go, well, you're going to have to maybe start again. And you might have to be the person that starts that first vulnerable conversation. You know, instead of, you know, catch up with your friend and, you know, when you catch up, instead of just talking about like meaningless stuff, you go, yeah, work's not going so, so good right now. And if they say, oh, that sucks then okay, then maybe that's someone that you don't continue to go down the path. But if they say, I'm so sorry to hear that, what's happening right now? You know, you kind of take that little step out and say, hey, I'm kind of wanting to go a little bit deeper. Do you want to jump in the water with me? And yeah, it might mean that you have to do that first because vulnerability is really inviting. You know, when someone shares something quite vulnerable, the most common reaction is, oh my God, me too. Mm. Like you Mm. felt that too. Yeah, I've been there. Mm. And all of a sudden it doesn't feel so scary. It doesn't feel so lonely. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, that will be really beautifully received. And if there is that one out of 10, you know, one time out of 10 times that that person can't hold you or can't receive it, that is not you that's them and that's the, where they're at in terms of their own vulnerability and for them maybe it serves them to have a little bit more surface relationships mm-hmm. because that's where they're at. Yeah. And so that depersonalization of but I was vulnerable with them and I got nothing back because I hear that all the time as well. Mm. The work is then to continue to build on yourself so that yeah. one day you can get to that point where you know that wasn't me. Yeah. People can only meet you as deeply as they've met themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Okay. So I would love your help. I feel like you're actually the perfect person to talk to. I want to finish this podcast by asking all my guests one question. (laughs) What do you like about me? (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell the story, guys. Uh, So Rachel and I do hang out outside of being psychotherapists. Too much. And... (laughs) The, by this, by the time that this is released, the second podcast would have been released. The, sorry, the second guest with Bev would have been released. So I haven't even heard it yet because it hasn't even been edited. But apparently, 
<laughs> Allegedly. When we were hanging out on Saturday night, Rachel made a pact that all of her guests <laughs> at the end of the podcast <laughs> are going to be asked, so what do you love the most about okay, me? let me justify myself. <laughs> Hold up. Hold the fuck. I will go on. I will take this podcast from an hour to three. <laughs> If you want me to tell you what I feel I about do, you. I do, I <laughs> do. But at the end of our last podcast, I was trying to teach people or show them or demonstrate how to be a narcissist. <laughs> how to have an empty sense of self that you fill with validation, okay? No, I was trying to show them that it's okay to ask your partner for reassurance. I often ask Bev, when I'm having a tough time, I'll, I'll ask him to give me a little pep up. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I, I was that. like, what I would love to end this podcast with <laughs> is I wouldn't know what you love about me. And maybe in hindsight, that was a bit narcissistic, <laughs> but I thought it was a really nice teachable moment. And then I told him everything I love about him. Oh, okay. So back to our podcast. What would you like to know, Rachel? I, well, I want to come up with another question that's not that. And I'm like, what's a good question to ask people at the end? Because like Tim Ferriss asks, what's one thing you've changed your mind about lately? Mm. Which I like. Or... What's one thing that you've learned that life has shown you lately? Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any? Are you in your dorsal vagal nerve right now? <laughs> that have be. I shut down by now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do you want me to? Uh, yeah. Would you give me a question? What, what do you think would be a nice question to end the podcast with? I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, gosh. To end each podcast with? Yeah. God, you're putting me on the spot Sorry, here. Babe. I am um, in this that walking exercise that we did yesterday. The questions got progressively more intimate. So I think the first one was like, "What's a compliment you wish you received more often? Mm. Is there a feeling that you miss?" And then the last question was, "Are you lying to yourself about anything?" So <laughs> could you imagine if I ended each podcast with like, "What are you lying to yourself about?" Right and now? we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine I have Gubble Mate on the podcast and I'm like, Gubble, hey, what are you like about right now? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. oh wow. Do you um, know, I don't know if this part will make it into the podcast. So Kayla and I, would, when we were in uni, um, we're talking about where we want to go with our careers and she wants to be Gubble Mate and I want to be a step Perel. <laughs> and one day I photoshopped, do you remember I like face mashed yeah. ourselves? and. You looked so much like Gabo Mate already. <laughs> that I was like, it's the Jewish gene. It's <laughs> like, what is going on here? I was so impressed. Maybe, you, maybe you should post it on your Instagram. Maybe, so I, should, people... maybe I should make that the cover. It's just going to get taken down for copyright. It's like, like, I'm trying to be a professional here and mashing my face up with Esther Perel. Oh, we're such losers. Oh, my God. I don't know, Rach. I don't know what the last question will be of your podcast, well, let me ask you a question yeah. then. What do you love most? <laughs> I'm joking. No. Um, yeah. What is one thing that life has shown you about yourself lately? I really do love that question. Um, I love the showing part mm. because. I think it's very easy to fall into the narrative of things and the old stories of things, but when you can see what life is actually showing you, it means that you're present. 
You know, it means that you're seeing things for what it is. So for me, I think that life has shown me lately no no particular event or even your own dysregulation lasts forever. Mm-hmm. That, you know, my mum actually always has said to me, this too shall pass. Yeah. And that without it being telling yourself – for you to see that in life, for life to show you that, Mm. I believe it. You know, I believe that we can feel really dark and we can feel really low and we can feel really dysregulated and out of control, which is a big one for people and for me. Mm. Um, But even if you've been in that state for weeks on end – which I certainly have, mm-hmm. yeah. the sun does come out. Mm. And, yeah, you may take a little bit of the heaviness from, you know, the darkness and the rain with you, but it does pass. And then mm. it may come again, mm-hmm. but it does pass. So I think life has shown me that things are temporary and that things do pass mm. and that you can become – more resilient each time it passes. Mm. That reminds mm. me of um, one thing one of my clients said to me that just blew me out of the water one time was we were talking about triggers and when you're triggered is a chance to um, you can eat, you're kind of at a fork in the road. You can continue your old pattern or this is a chance to practice something new, kind of like Sarah was talking about how she would look at her partner's eyes and um, you know, tell her nervous system that she was okay. And she said, yeah, you could use the word triggered or you could use the word opportunity. Like life has given me now an op- another opportunity to develop this. That's beautiful. Yeah, to develop this skill and to try something new. And I was like, oh my That's really goodness. beautiful. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like how often do we go, oh my God, that triggered me as though that that's a bad thing. It's like, yes, something comes up. Now you have a chance to alchemize it. That's right. Yeah. And you know how you spoke about earlier where it's the knocking on the door? Mm. It's the knocking on the door. Let's listen to it. Let's let's see what it's trying to tell us. Yeah. So yeah, I believe in that and I think it's really and it's so much more um inviting for it to be an opportunity mm. than to see it as a trigger, which is all scary and yeah. you know, it's not welcome here. Triggers yeah. are not welcome. Yeah. That feels complete for me. How do you feel? I feel great. Yeah. For having me. I love you. I love the fuck out of you. I feel like we could have chatted and chatted and chatted. And I hope, yeah, I just hope that I guess a big reason why I was excited to come on your podcast, Rach, was because I love how in your first episode you said – I want to be able to make psychotherapy more accessible Mm -hmm. to people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just would love for your voice, which I don't doubt at all that it, you know, it will do anything but help people Mm. and inspire people and normalize for people Mm. that getting help or seeking support it can be from a therapist, it can be from a friend, it can be from a dog, mm-hmm. is life-changing. And, yeah, 
it sucks to go through it and it sucks to sit in the chair in front of someone that you have no idea for the Mm. very first time. Mm. But again, the more you expose yourself, the better it feels. And I just feel like the more that we can speak and the more that we can get the word out there on why going to the root of issues is so helpful Mm. um I think will motivate a lot of people so yeah whether it's a big t or a little t Mm. it doesn't matter and I just hope that people can use that message as you know a little sign of hope that you know the nervous system is so flexible yes and it's not permanent and it can be retrained so beautifully Mm, it can be different Mm. and you know we don't have to live in a constant state of suffering Mm. or exhaustion or um depression Mm -hmm. you know there's so much that we can do to make the very short time that we have here yeah worthwhile yeah yeah I love that thank you thank you um and if people want to find you where can they find you so I don't have a social media following. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really old school like that. Um, But you can find me at my practice called Grow Mindfully. We'll link that in the show notes if anyone wants to find it. Grow Mindfully. And I, yeah, I do face-to-face and telehealth for those people who are not in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Um, And Grow Mindfully is in Crow's Nest. Yeah, Crow's crow's Nest. Um, And You You say that's so South African. Crow's Nest. No, I say Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest. Anyway. Anyway, sorry. Um, So, yeah, so that is where I am. And, yeah, all my details are online. Well, I'll post your email address, your phone number, (laughs) my address, your personal address. I'll post it all so they can find you. All right, we're actually losing the fucking plot. I love you. I love love you you so much. Thanks for Um, having me. Thank you for being here. I'm sure you'll be back. Oh, I'll be back next week. I'm like, I'll be like, hi. (laughs) Welcome to the yogi therapist (laughs) and the brand non-specific trauma therapist. (laughs) All right, we're going. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Yogi Therapist Podcast. If you enjoyed what was discussed today, then consider subscribing and leaving a review. Check out the show notes for any additional information about what was covered here today. And you can find me at theyogitherapist.com.au or on Instagram at yogitherapist underscore for more information on me and my therapy. Until next time.